Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra and pay our respects to elders, past, present and future. This podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. Today's guest is Bryony Doyle. Bryony has had a very interesting writing career. The debut novel, The Island Will Sink, was set in a not-too-distant future on the brink of collapse, where catastrophe is the most popular form of entertainment. Bryony then followed this up with her second book, Adult Fantasy, a personal essay and critical critique about turning 30 in a world of economic uncertainty, political conservatism, and precarious employment conditions. Bryony's latest book is called Echolalia, which has been hotly anticipated and was released in June 2021. Echolalia is about a family in the lead-up to and aftermath of a tragedy. Set in the fictionalised rural centre of Shorehaven, the story poses complex questions about the roles of women, particularly mothers, about class and status, about environmental degradation, responsibility and legacy. And it's one of the best books by an Australian author this year. Echolalia is able to be borrowed from Yarra Libraries, as well as being available to buy at all good bookstores. Now here's Bryony Doyle talking about her writing career, living in the era of climate emergency, and Echolalia. Welcome, Bryony. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Yarra Libraries podcast. You are the author of three books now, and you're also an academic. So before we begin, I just, I've got to ask, because during the research for this interview, I discovered that you did write a thesis on the post-apocalyptic imagination. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I can. That's going back a number of years now. Um, yeah, I did like a, a literary studies, media studies um, thesis that looked at the way apocalyptic narrative structures worked in various contexts, which included looking at literature, obviously, or and, and film and whatnot, but also looked at the reporting of disaster. As I say that, I think, wow, I should kind of bring back some of those um, theories that I was working with. The apocalyptic narrative structure for listeners who might not have spent so much time thinking about it understandably as I did is um, this idea that total catastrophe precedes um, revelation and also often salvation of an elect. So it's it's a narrative structure that you can essentially apply to anything and you can also pick it out of various texts. And my kind of thesis was, I guess, in, in my PhD was, uh, and it's, it feels kind of rudimentary to me to be even saying it out loud now, is that, you know, you learn a lot about um, the ideological inclinations of the text by who the elect are and by what the revelation is. And also that there's something about the idea of revelation through catastrophe that's inherently kind of problematic and difficult, but also very interesting. So after that, was that uh, before your first book, The Island Will Sink, that you did that? It Kind of, like half. So I started writing The Island Will Sink really young. I guess I was like, I don't know, 24, maybe, maybe even younger. And I wrote it and it, I don't think it was very good, the draft that I had. And I sent it to a number of publishers, probably quite foolishly and prematurely. And they were all like, great writing, you know, course when you're better at it or have a better book or whatever. And um, 
then I, I went away and worked various jobs and then I came back to university and pursued a PhD and that's what I did, this apocalyptic narratives work. And then I came, after I finished my PhD, I took that manuscript for the Island Will Sink and I stayed for uh, like a month or two at my friend's house down the coast and I was like, okay, I'm going to rewrite it and if I can fix it, I can fix it and if not, I can scrap it because it had kind of been, you know, 10 years since I had started it. And so I rewrote it and and actually I think that the PhD and all the things that I'd been thinking about critically completely informed the rewrite. And, of course, the fact that, like, many years had passed and I'd read many more books and thought many more things and written many more things. Um, yeah, and then I rewrote it and, and actually even sent it to some of the same publishers and publishers who had passed before offered on the book. So it was an interesting experience for, a, you know, an emerging writer with a book to kind of put something away for so long, come back to it and rework it with kind of theoretical sort of aspirations, I suppose. So the island will sink that came out in 2016. Um, right. Is that right? Yeah. So it's not a whole 10 yeah. years that I was working on it, but it was yeah. kind of like, oh, yeah, it came out 10 years after I started it. I think I started it in 2005 or 2006. I wrote it and uh, and then put it aside and then would come back to it every now and then. And, yeah, it came out in 2016. Yeah. It was pretty well worked over by the time it was its publisher, then The Lifted Brow, which is then Brow Books, who are now defunct. And, yeah, like so the version that came out was the version that had been rewritten post-thesis. Sure. And that book was set in the future, a, a different future, which was on the brink of uh, collapse. And I guess the premise around it is catastrophe is the uh, form of entertainment. Um, so you did that. And then for your second book, you took a really different approach. You wrote, a, I guess it's a memoir of sorts, uh, but it's kind of a memoir for you, but also for, for everyone who's turning 30 or in that age group. Uh, and that was called Adult Fantasy. It looked at, uh, you know, a lot of things, but mainly about, like, what a different situation it is for someone turning 30 than to previous generations uh, and, you know, with the lack of economic certainty, um, house prices, uh, wage uncertainty, um, environmental concerns as well, obviously, and the difference uh, in the ways, you know, relationships work and just entirely different expectations so how do you think these two very different works informed your latest book, Echolalia? Hmm. I don't know. I think I rethink uh, lots of questions over and over again in different ways, and I'm sure many writers have this experience. One of the things that I'm interested in that you picked up in both um, Adult Fantasy and The Island Will Sink is that question of, of um, legacy and the relationship between ourselves and the future, whether that's by way of the things that we do that produce certain kinds of futures or by way of interrelating between past generations and present and emerging generations. So like that's definitely a really big part of Echolalia. It was a huge part of adult fantasy. I guess like I just have a kind of an impulse to write whatever I write next and maybe sometimes I react in a genre way. Certainly with adult fantasy, potentially that was the book that it would have been more expected for me to publish first as a young writer to publish a kind of a, a, a salty political memoir is kind of first is kind of more expected. And, and the reason that that didn't happen is because the Island will sink got picked up. So um, actually I had signed the contract for adult fantasy before I signed a contract for Island, but then Island mm. came out first. So it's kind of this interplay. So I was actually 
doing the final edits on The Island Will Sink as adult fantasy was also being written. So, yeah, yeah, it was an interesting experience. Insofar as it informed it, I mean, you know, adult fantasy like was about my life, so it included a lot of the thinking that I'd been doing. Echolalia is not about my life and it's not based on any aspect of my life um, and nor was The Island Will Sink. Like my, my novels tend not to be that. They tend more to be what-if kind of books mm-hmm. um, or so far anyway. Um, but definitely Echolalia is similar insofar as it's future facing. It's thinking what are the impacts of the things that we're doing now? What are our responsibilities? How are we co-responsible to each other? You know, it's interested in relationships, but it's exploring that in this realist fiction mode. But it's also playing with elements of genre as I did, I think, I always kind of mess with genre, even in the memoir, I was messing with genre because I was kind of also doing autoethnography, also doing cultural critique, also doing, you know, a number of different things. Um, Mm. And so Echolalia is also playing with tropes of the domestic thriller and playing with ideas of like making things uncanny and horrific that are everyday things. So in in an aesthetic sense, there's a definite thread between the various books. And in terms of thematics, yeah, it's just that it's just they all do look to the future in various ways, even though with Echolalia, a great deal of the story takes place in the recent past with some of it being in the not too distant future. So talking about Echolalia, which is your latest book, uh, I wanted to start with um, my two favourite sentences in the book. Oh, great. Um, Having read the book right through, uh, through to the end, I think it's also maybe a a pretty good summary of some of the main themes of the book. And that's when you say, well, when you write, it isn't good to have so much vacant space at the centre of a town. It invites madness and despair. The book is uh, based in a fictional town of Shorehaven and there is a lake in the middle of that town. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea? Yeah so that line is I believe spoken by um, the kind of matriarch of this quite um, powerful local family of real estate developers the Cormacs, Pat Cormac Um, and she's ruminating on the lake and the lake in this town is a man-made lake, but it's also the town's pride and joy and people walk around the lake and they do boat races on the lake and what have you. But also um, in a drought, the lake turned to a, a large um, windswept, fairly uninviting paddock. So the, the joke of that being that all the really fancy houses in town were all around this paddock. And as the book moves back and forward in this kind of 15-year um, space that it navigates, the lake has different metaphorical phases, but it also goes through different kind of climactic iterations. And what Pat is kind of saying, oh, it's not good to have so much vacant space at the centre of a town, is kind of is metaphorical in the sense of like, you know, it, it's not good to to not be, have a unifying idea at the centre of something or be able to have a conversation at the centre of something. But it's also ironic insofar as this is a man-made lake that is a direct result of settler colonising farming practices where they've like, channeled all of the natural springs and wetlands into this, you know, very managed lake and it's used in all these particular ways without acknowledging, you know, the country that uh, it obliterates, which is kind of an apocalyptic idea, right? You obliterate something and reveal something else over the top of it. So, yeah, that that lake is a really uh, important symbolic device, but also it's based on, you know, a a real lake. Um, It's not just a figment of my imagination. And I think that it's a a really potent lesson to us. 
in a, in a lot of ways, like I'm from the South Island of New Zealand yeah. and, um, you know, the relationship with the lake and the town reminded me a little bit about Christchurch post-earthquake. Right. We've got the um, part of, you know, the landscape, the most famous thing in Christchurch was the cathedral, had a really ma- massive cathedral. And after the um, earthquake, there was just rubble. It was like uh, this thing right at the centre of the town and the aftermath of that, just having this kind of empty space around the middle of your city. Mm. I think that lots of people will probably have that kind of resonance And I think that those markers of aftermath are important to ruminate on. What comes to mind immediately hearing you talk about Christchurch is the hypercenter monument in Hiroshima. Yeah. So, you know, they have constructed a park around what was the hypercenter of the nuclear blast. And it's a beautiful park and they've kind of lit the ruins in quite a beautiful way and people go on dates there and it's all really lovely but it is at the centre again or arguably the centre of Hiroshima and certainly the centre of the um, cultural activities and I feel like it they they keep it there as a monument to peace it's called Peace Park but I think it's there to remind us as well that although we live in an aftermath you know the damage is ongoing and also that it can recur And I think that those kind of potent traumascapes or trauma monuments can be quite important, whether they're actual physical monuments or whether you're doing it through literature or film or what have you. Obviously, the environment is a really big part of the story of Echolalia, but at at its core, it's also about a family and in particular about a mum who is under all kinds of pressure. What, What made you want to write about that in particular? Before I sketched the idea for Echolalia, I read an article that I could never find again, (laughs) which makes me doubt if I ever read it. But anyway, this is how it is in my mind. I read an article about a woman in my hometown who was very, very young and she caused injury to one of her children and she was at home and the article had sparse in detail, but she was at home alone with her three kids, um, one of whom had developmental challenges. And I just remember feeling so much empathy for her um, and wondering how on earth it was that she could be alone and unsupported in this state and also thinking simultaneously you know I'm 38 I've got lots of friends with young kids and thinking of all the times that they are actually alone and unsupported and you know I'm a middle-class white cisgendered woman and many of my friends are also and you know this would be even more pronounced as you go down the income scale, right? And yeah. I've always kind of been interested in motherhood, um, particularly as a social role and how it's kind of constructed, and I write about this a little bit in Adult Fantasy, about how it's actually constructed over the activity of parenting um, and kind of like laced into women's identities as though it's supposed to give them something above and beyond the activity of parenting and the relationship between parent and child and co-parents and children um, or whatever it is which I've always found like troubling because it gives a notion that or it or it offers a promise that I don't think anyone can fulfill not the child the mother can try and try and try and still feel wanting and so I was interested in investigating those various intersections between you know what we tell women they can expect and what kind of support 
we give them when they act on those expectations? Yeah, I found some of the most powerful parts in the book are told in the flashbacks. The way that you've got the book structured are either before or after a specific event. And the flashbacks, in particular, the memories of the main character's high school years, uh, yeah, are really powerful. What inspired you to write the book in that way, uh, back and forwards through time? So actually the novel Deliverance by, is it James Dickey? I'm pretty sure it is. Um, so I don't know if you've read that novel. Most of us have seen the film, but the novel is actually structured in three days or four days or something. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of like they're going, they're getting ready to go on the camping trip. They go on the camping trip, something catastrophic happens, and then it's the aftermath. And I was just really so interested in this structure that's like hangs around an event like that. And as I say this out loud, it's it's probably really obvious to listeners and it, as it becomes obvious to me well after the fact that this is really related to that apocalyptic narrative structure kind of thing insofar as I wanted to explore aftermath um, in, in kind of nuanced ways and from different perspectives and kind of trouble this notion of, of like just here's, here's the moral of the story. Um, I kind of wanted to, to show a, a sort of a ripple effect um, and that's why that structure happened. So originally I was going on the deliverance mode and then I had a kind of what I always tell my students to watch out for, which is a structural epiphany where you're like, wait a second, I could tear this up into a million pieces and it would be better than the way that I'm doing it right now and it would solve some of the problems I've got with characterization and whatnot and that's when it took that kind of shape. And what's interesting to me as a writer and as a writer who also teaches writing Mm-hmm. is that I then I didn't write all the before sections and all the after sections and then splice them in together. I actually wrote the book mostly in the order that it's in. Some things did move around um, and there were some insertions at a certain point. But, yeah, largely I'd be like, okay, now we need to go into the future and hear from X character. And then I would go and do lots of work outside the book on characterization and, um, you know, go back to all of my profiles and backstories and all the rest of it, and then come in and write that person's uh, chapter. So yeah, it was a really interesting exercise in in craft as a writer, I think. Yeah, sure. And it's, yeah, it is, it is very effective in, in the way it tells the story. Earlier in our talk, you mentioned that you just have the impulse to write whatever you write next. Do you have anything coming up that you're starting on or is it too early? Are you still in the cycle of uh, promoting this one? I'm in the cycle of promoting this one and I I already had an impulse to write another book a a couple of years ago, which was going to be another kind of more cli-fi sort of book. And I have all the character studies and notes for it. And it's an elaborately plotted behemoth of a thing, but I haven't been able, I haven't felt able to come back to it since, you know, the beginning, you know, since 2020, essentially. So Echolalia was picked up at the beginning of 2020 and it's out now. And in that time, I just haven't really had the, um, (laughs) I don't know, strength of character to go into this, like, what I, what feels like quite a big novel to me and uh, I just recently moved for a little while relocated to kind of get a change of scenery and I have started working on just some auto fiction but the auto fiction was kind of based on you know the idea of auto fiction in general to me is that you're you know you come into contact with other people and the auto fiction builds from there and so you know I started it last week it's mid-July for those of you listening in other places and times well into the future and of course like as soon as I started it we got locked down and so my like Mm. 
conversations that I was plotting and reimagining and stuff sort of tended to cease and became very screen based again. So yeah, I'm, I, I had a play with it yesterday. I'm going to try my best, but I, I don't know, like I, I find this lockdown period, like the idea that you should be a, a writer, it should be an ideal moment for a writer because there's no distractions. I find it the opposite. I'm finding it extremely difficult um, to, to know what to think about and to know what to develop on the page, let alone to be able to sit down and do it. I know exactly what you mean and I know a lot of creative people have said exactly the same thing to me, that if they'd have been told that this is what was going to go on, they would have probably thought, great, I'll be able to work on all my stuff. Right. And then now it's happening, it's almost like there's this kind of void where there should be artistic art inspiration or uh, it's, it's not like you have really have more time. Uh, it's a different kind of time. It's a different kind of time, but I think also yeah. there's a there's a kind of a heartening message that we can take from this. And as you know, having read my book, Sam, I'm not usually a silver linings kind of gal. <laughs> I can say I can say that like if if art making is hard in this time, it's because art happens in conversation with the world. And when you're shut out of the world, is it such a surprise that inspiration dries up? So it kind of gives the lie to this notion that that creative people, that even sounds like an advertising agency, but that people that are, you know, making art, writing, you know, painting, doing all of these things, that they're doing it cloistered off from the world. I think that that's a myth. And I think that, you know, if anything proves that, it's the widespread paralysis that people have felt um, while they have all of this time, this different time, this like time in which the body is put in storage. That's how I feel about lockdowns. I feel like someone put my body in storage and with the body in storage, not to be too Cartesian about it, but the brain becomes a bit weird and doesn't seem to have the expansiveness that it had before. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of stuff, uh, you know, starts to come out. Um, well, I wanted you know, to write an essay collection on solitude before we went into the lockdown, and then I was like, "Everyone's going to be on that now." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, "Well, everyone's going to do essay collections on solitude," but I haven't actually seen any yet. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Recently at uh, Fitzroy Library, we had the Fitzroy Writers Festival, and um, as part of that, we had a uh, a panel on um, climate change and fiction. And we had uh, Australian writers who've touched on climate change within their fiction. We had Alice Robinson, who read, wrote the, the Glad Shout, which has been really well received. We also had Sean O'Byrne, who wrote a collection of short stories, including uh, one about a, a woman who's living in Malvern, which is kind of a, a more um, well-to-do suburb in Melbourne, uh, as the uh, basically the things just start melting down uh, because it's so hot. And then finally, we had uh, Kali Warsam, who wrote a story called Lists of Non-Remedies about um, what happens uh, like with authoritarianism uh, when the climate starts to get really bad. And, you know, this is a theme and it's, it's so obvious. I'm not going to ask you why you think it's a theme. It's because it's, it's, it's what's going on. But do you, do you, when, you're, when you're writing and, you know, as an Australian writer in this context, um, do you feel like uh, that you're part of something bigger within writing or do, do you really ever think about that? Yeah, sort of, but I think my answer to this relates to my last answer insofar as saying that art is in, or art that I'm interested in in any way is in conversation with the world. And, mm. you know, this cli-fi or, or climate fiction or whatever, I actually just think fi- realistic fiction set in the present <laughs> 
that ignores climate, it's like ignoring the internet, you know, it's no longer realistic. So, you know, with Echolalia, for instance, I didn't set out to do any more climate stuff, really. I was, I was looking to write a, a realist novel uh, about a family and I was looking to kind of interrogate the recent um, huge popularity of domestic thrillers and to kind of play around with that in a distinctly feminist way and all of that happened but then the climate just asserted itself you know I did have always have the lake and that was always going to be a metaphor in it but the climate really kind of pushed itself to the front because I just think that the psychological impacts as well as the political impacts as well as the economic impacts of climate crisis are writ large not only on our imaginations but on our realities and I think that like literature that's not dealing with that isn't actually dealing in whatever way not to say that we all have to instructively deal with this but if we're totally ignoring it you know why (laughs) to what end who are we writing about that is immune what place are we writing about that that doesn't um, feel the impacts of this so I'm really interested in you know how the psychology of living through climate crisis is is um, manifesting at the moment and into the future. Insofar as that will be a movement, for sure, I think that it will be because I think that people are interested in that because I think that people are aware that they're experiencing that and I think that um, awareness of that will only grow. The cli-fi term is going to be useful for a little while in order to um, draw readers to things and also to point out that there is a movement. I think that naming things can be useful in that way. But I also think that And I think that we're seeing that. And in those stories that you mentioned and in other works that I've encountered, you know, we're seeing more and more a kind of a critical reflection on what the environment is in the text um, in a way that's kind of aligned with eco-criticism but not really pushing that line, you know, like weather isn't, it's not just a dark and stormy night, you know. We're not Mm. pushing around our seasons to convey our moods anymore. We're showing that climate environments these things are producing not just our moods but our way of interfacing with the world and with each other what are you reading at the moment can you give us any recommendations i just started reading or i'm like i don't know a quarter of the way through deborah levi's real estate which i'm really loving that's the end of her trilogy that i think it started with things i don't want to know that's about um her life as a writer i'm really i guess i'm going into a little introspective hole up here in my weird little echoic um, large windowed apartment that I'm in at the moment and um, and thinking a lot about you know what is this like life that we're we are having women writing about their lives women producing work and living you know this kind of thing so I, I'm really enjoying that and was looking forward to it as the last of this trilogy I think it's the longest book in the trilogy I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that but I think so um I also started reading Emily Maguire's Love Objects and I thought that it's, it's just been really gripping and beautiful and her characterization is always really incredible um what else have I read recently that I loved? I mean, I loved Luster. Did everyone love Luster? If you haven't read Luster, go and read that. That would be my huge recommendation. I think that book just blew my mind. Uh, oh, I can give a little plug to a book that will be coming out in October, um, Max Easton's The Magpie Wing, which is um, about Sydney, Western Sydney. It's kind of a coming-of-age story, but it's also about the striation of this city and, you know, terribly inequitable it is, but also, like you know just all the conflicts within it I guess and he's got really compelling characterization in that as well that was Echolalia author Bryony Doyle Echolalia is able to be borrowed from Yarra libraries as well as being available to buy at all good bookstores 
This podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. The Ewing Trust is a fund that allows special and unique programming at Fitzroy Library and promotes libraries, literature, and a lifelong love of learning in Fitzroy. There are five libraries within the city of Yarra, Carlton, Richmond, Collingwood, Fitzroy, and Bagunga Nungeon, North Fitzroy. These libraries provide free access to collections, programs, and events to residents and visitors to Yarra. Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust are proud to support the Libraries Change Lives initiative, which highlights how Victorian public libraries change lives by offering communities a place to learn, create, and belong. Please like, share, and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast. Thank you to the Ewing Trust for making this podcast possible.